Too big, too small is completely beside the point. When you rode your bike, you had joy. When you rode your bike, you were proud. Get back on that bike and see how strong you can be. I was like, huh? I wish to inspire listeners to understand that while nutrition is is a key element in having a healthy body that can move, that the most beautiful body is the one that can move, is the one that at 80 can carry the grandchildren up the stairs. Eat for that. Welcome to the Eat for Endurance podcast. My name is Claire Shorenstein, and I'm a registered dietitian and running coach based in New York City. My goal for this podcast, aside from having fun, of course, is to demonstrate that there is no one-size-fits-all style of eating. Rather, there are many different pathways towards individualized health and sports performance. I explore this in my athlete nutrition profiles, as well as in interviews with fellow dietitians on their areas of expertise. I am, I can, I will, I do. That is the signature mantra of today's guest, Christine Derkel. If you ride a Peloton, you already know who she is. If not, then I am very excited to introduce her to you. She is a senior Peloton instructor. She's been there for six years. And she is a world and national track cycling champion with six gold medals. She has an amazing story to share. I'm really excited to share it with you guys as well. And I just had such a blast talking to her. This is a long episode, just be warned. We were talking for over two hours and I swear we could have just kept on going, but I had to pick up my toddler from school so we had to shut it down at some point. But uh, really excited to share this one with you and I'm very grateful that Christine was so generous with her time and so open with her story and all of the tough moments and tough journeys that she went through to become the strong and inspiring woman that she is today. So without further ado, Christine Derkel. Christine, welcome to the Eat for Endurance podcast. It is such an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for reaching out. I am honored to be a part of this. It is such an important part of our lives. Yes, we, we need nutrition to live and for many other things. Um, we spoke over the summer and just a few things have been going on since then for you and me in yeah. the world. <laughs> so I'm yeah, really just glad. A few. Just a few. Uh, so I'm really glad we were able to finally make this happen. Um, you are such an inspiration to so many people, including myself. I am a Peloton writer as well. Love your classes. So happy you joined you. Team PowerZone, by the way. Um, Thank you. So- I'm so happy about that as well. Yeah. You're a mother, you're a world and national track cycling champion with six gold medals, you're a senior Peloton instructor, and as you say, you're bigger than a smaller pair of pants, which is just one of the one of many amazing mantras that you teach in your classes and embrace in your own life. I'm so excited to hear your story and specifically your nutrition story, so let's get started. Um, before we chat about cycling, let's dig into your nutrition roots. Where did you grow up and what did food look like for you and your family? I grew up in suburban Pennsylvania, Downingtown, to be exact, which is about 45 minutes outside of Philly in a two-story colonial with a quarter acre yard with a big swing set in the back to (laughs) give you a clear picture. And food looked like steakums, macaroni and cheese casserole, as made per the directions on the side of the Ronzoni box. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, it was frozen veal parmesan patties baked with a slice of cheese on top, and salads were made of iceberg with tomatoes and cucumbers and seven seas zesty Italian dressing mixed in the cruet. Nice. <laughs> it was a lot of prepared, um, frozen, you know, partially prepared things. Um, and I did have an awakening later that there was more to food than the freezer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> later in life that's good <laughs> yes <laughs> what is uh so you you had your mom kind of preparing stuff was your dad around like what was what was the family scene like yeah my dad was around um and my brother as well and it was it was very basic it was um you know there were homemade meatballs and there was family dinner and there were you know, sometimes ordering cheesesteaks and sometimes the homemade things. But, uh, and there was always a salad. But when dancing got more serious and, um, and it became clear that my body did not fit the box for ballet, mm-hmm. there came a new awareness of food. I'll never forget being in a dance class. I might have been five or six or seven at the ballet bar in first position and the dance mistress came up and poked me in the stomach and said, what's with all those marshmallows and suck it in. And that was the beginning of a very, very bad trajectory of negative self-awareness that I was bigger and built differently than the other girls. And as that progressed, and I was showing talent, but not fitting into the costumes, um, I became very aware of what I was eating. And my mother tried to help, but neither of us knew enough. I certainly didn't. And she certainly had no idea of you know, the, the very detailed nutritional needs of a dancer. Dancing six days a week, three classes a day sometimes, you need nutrition to fuel you. Um, And the emotional toll it took, the the emotional toll of the weigh-ins, the emotional toll of being 13 years old and being pulled aside and the ballet mistress presuming asking me what birth control I was on and telling me that there were other options that didn't cause weight gain. Um, All of these things, getting on the scale and being told that I would need to starve myself if I wanted to get the part. And that when I did lose weight, I was told, well, now you look like a regular person, but there's still work to do if you want to look like a ballerina. and at five foot six on my, at the time, and my bone structure at 112 pounds, like there was, without becoming very, very sick, there was, there was nowhere else to go. That's light for five foot six. Yeah. That is very, there is very small. How old were you when you did, when you started ballet? Five, six years old. Wow. And. It was around 11, I went on 
point and and 11 that I got my period. Mm. So those two, puberty and going on point were not, those two things didn't play well together. I, I, it was felt so alienated when I became aware that I couldn't eat what my family was eating. We would go yeah. to Burger King and McDonald's and then I had to get the chicken <laughs> instead of the cheeseburger and it couldn't have anything on it. I remember times between lunch and dinner at home going in the snack drawer and my mother being in the other room and hearing the rustling of the plastic and saying, what are you doing? We're eating in three hours. You don't need that. And me legitimately being hungry, mm-hmm. having burned tons of calories from hours of dancing and not understand it. like food was now bad food was toxic food was dangerous and food made me feel alienated because I couldn't just enjoy what everybody else was enjoying and so there was this sense of my body is the enemy and the enemy and yeah. at I remember overeating for a few months I think somewhere around the 11 12 year old period i would eat and eat and eat three and four servings at dinner so much that i was in pain and i did this over and over again and i it was like some kind of it was some kind of medicinal eating it was some kind of numbing eating but i was not aware of what i was doing mm-hmm. and then at some point between then and 14, I don't remember who, I don't remember the conversation, but it had to be from another dancer that said, you can eat whatever you want if you just purge it. Oh, gosh. And yeah. she taught me how to be bulimic. And that was mm-hmm. five years. So throughout the bulk of being a teenager, was in a very deep cave of bulimia and self-harm. Yeah. And it was only on getting into college that I was, it was very clear in my head that I couldn't keep doing this in those new circumstances. There was, like, I had to change. I knew I had to change. I knew I had to get a grip on it. It was a very, very challenging time. And there was all the, because that whole behavior and how destructive it is on the family and how uncomfortable the family becomes trying to help. But if they said anything, it was humiliating. And so food was all tied up in feel good, taste good, but dangerous and toxic, alienating place. So, um, yeah. It's incredible what, how much power food and the idea of food and what it can do to us or do for us can be so destructive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, and it's powerful stuff. And I really thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure a lot of people need to hear this as well. Yes. Um, have you, have you spoken about your eating disorder before publicly? I have. I have not 
hidden it, but I, because I, there's no reason to hide that, but it's, sure. it, I haven't, I haven't led with that. Sure. Um, I haven't, my story hasn't been about having had a deceiving eating disorder as a, as a teenager. This story has been about, you know, the other things that you hear me say, being bigger than a mm-hmm. small pair of pants, which that is obviously tied up in. Mm-hmm. But I, in, in my journey, you know, it's a, it's a thing that there's a lot of shame and embarrassment associated with. Of course. And um, I don't know that I didn't lead with it because of that, but I don't know. I, I don't know that I've thought that much about it. It's um, being bigger than a smaller pair of pants seemed more, ha- has just been an anchor for me to pull me out of that place, to know that I mm-hmm. matter more, to convince myself that I matter more than my waistline. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, it would just be so hard to go through the things that you went through as a young girl, as a young dancer, especially in that time when I think we, I think we knew less about nutrition then, or at least there was a different approach to it than it is yeah. now, you know? Um, but it, it seems nearly impossible to go through that and not go down a, some sort of negative trajectory, as you said, and not to not have, you know, to not develop disordered eating or eating disorders, which as it stands are just so incredibly common in teenagers, yeah. men and women, particularly young girls. Yeah. And especially going through puberty and, you know, among all athletes we see, but, you know, especially in the sports that are more aesthetic, gymnasts, dancers, all that weight, you know, classification things, wrestling, rowing, that kind of stuff. I mean, there's just so many, so many unhealthy behaviors that we see. um, And there's such this like fighting against your body rather than embracing it and just trusting yourself and telling yourself it's hard now, but I know my body will be strong. It's just, I, I mean, there yeah. was this powerful letter um, by Lauren Fleshman, who's a um, an amazing runner who's now retired, but she wrote like this letter to her high school self. And it was mm. all about just like, I wish you could have just rather, you know, don't fight your body, like embrace it. And it was just the kind of all along these lines and just yeah. know that just get through this rough time and you will be the best runner, you know, you can be, right. you know, and, and, but it's hard. It's hard when you're when you're someone young and you're you don't know yourself yet and you're looking to others and you're just hearing you say things like, I had to eat the chicken or I needed to do this, not right. you know, I wanted to or I chose to or this right. is what my body wanted, or whatever it is, you know, it that's powerful language, you know, and, and it is powerful yeah. language. And that whole conversation that we have with ourselves in our head, in that, that space between ourselves and the mirror, um, where I would look at my body and literally have such destructive thoughts. Like if I could just cut this part off, mm-hmm. um, and and what exercises do I need to do to, to flatten that out or to like literally sculpt and not in a positive way or in an artistic way, mm-hmm. but to carve off the unnecessary flesh um, and to then 
try to hide my body. I spent a very, very long time. I, I was the kid at the beach in the summer when everybody else is in a bathing suit in black cargo pants. Um, completely afraid to take my pants off. Even and when you were 112 pounds? When you were that small? <laughs> all around that time. All <laughs> and, but it was also like, if someone gave me a compliment, suddenly my confidence would have been boosted. And I'd take the pants off and I'd be fine for a few hours. I mm. mean, which goes, I have a very, very... Um, very, very strong feelings about confidence not being rooted in compliments. Mm-hmm. I remember my daughter coming home from school as a little girl saying, somebody said they liked my whatever. And I'm like, that's great, but uh, please don't let that be where your confidence comes from. Because I've struggled with that incredibly as a child, as a teenager. Um, and to go back to what you said about um, who was what was the name of the woman you mentioned who said about oh, racing? Lauren Fleshman, the runner. Yeah. Yes. You've probably heard me say, embrace your build. You were built mm-hmm. for something. And to invite that instead of fighting our bodies. When I went from dancing to cycling and discovered bike racing and winning races, and I became proud of myself when I the the thing that I was ashamed of started to become the thing I was proud of I realized I needed to embrace my build instead of judging it and fighting it and that my success in bike racing was so addictive because it wasn't based on being skinny enough or small enough or pretty enough all of the things i i wanted to do in dance were based on someone else's opinion of my appearance and my success was based on other people in cycling my success was rooted in knowing my strength and showing up and taking risks and it had nothing to do. You're under a helmet. No one can see your face. You're in lycra. <laughs> like you're, you're like no hiding your body in lycra. <laughs> There's no hiding your body, but it's it's um, it's it's not about that whole judgment of making pretty lines, like ballet is. It was about strength and force and smarts, and you didn't win because of someone else's opinion of you. You won. Because you you played the game right, you you did the race, um, and that was incredibly powerful stuff for me. And in that long journey, I developed a completely different relationship with food, and a much more empowered relationship with food. I would not say that my relationship with food is perfect now, but I certainly am nowhere near that dark hole of that I was in as a teenager. Yeah. I eat for what makes me feel good and eat for what makes me feel strong and powerful and what fuels my races and my teaching. And I eat things that 
are absolutely luscious experiences because I love flavors and I love cooking. So it is, it, change is possible. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And, you know, I, I love hearing you say that. It, it's, I mean, as we spoke to in the beginning, food is about so many different things and just the experience of eating and enjoying and tasting, savoring. I mean, there's so much more to food and nutrition than the macros and the counting and all that stuff. And obviously we have nutrition needs and it's what I work on with my clients, but at the same time, we want to celebrate food and enjoy food and embrace food and feel good. And that is, I a hundred percent agree with you. That is the main goal. When I work with people, I want yeah. you to feel good in all senses, you know, whether it's in sport or outside of sport. So that's awesome to hear. Let's connect the dots. So we are in this dark time and, you know, you're a dancer. At some point, you quit dancing. You're in college. I think you were studying theater or something like that. And eventually you're kind of, you know, you move to New York City and you start cycling as a bike messenger. You get into competitive sport. You become a sponsored athlete. So much going on in there. And of course, you know, you transition to developing this sense of power, you know, for, from your thighs and your body and everything being too large or being judged to being this source of power and being this source of pride and being celebrated, which is so beautiful. But obviously that was a, that was a journey. <laughs> so let's talk about the in-between and the, maybe some of just a few more details there. So okay. and because nutrition is very much involved there, you don't just snap your fingers and stop having an eating disorder, obviously. Did you ever seek help? Um, were you, were your, was your family aware? Like kind of how did you get out of that whole situation with yourself? When I was 14 and the eating disorder was just blowing up and behaviors of self-harm as well, um, I was hospitalized. So my family was very aware. We were mm. in therapy and it became clear that I was in such dire straits that um, I was hospitalized for six weeks in oh. inpatient treatment for yeah. bulimia and self-harm. And a very, very scary time for a young teenager. Um, but during the therapy sessions there, they incorporated, um, what is it called? Drama therapy, psychotherapy. Oh psychodrama mm -hmm. um where in order to create understanding of all of the forces in your life you would role play either your mother or your father and somebody you know you would enact scenarios from the other perspectives to be in the other person's shoes and I, somehow i really really got into this therapy and it was very cathartic for me and made me understand a lot of the other elements that were um, influencing why I was hating myself so much beyond food and beyond dance. Mm -hmm. And when we were closing out, the therapists were making recommendations on what to do next. And they suggested that I might get a lot out of exploring theater and acting. 
And so I took some workshops and I did a summer theater camp and then I auditioned for a theater high school and then I auditioned for Carnegie Mellon and it felt like it was the right thing because I enjoyed, I, I loved being on stage. I loved storytelling, whether mm-hmm. it was through dance or through words, all through movement. And it seemed my body, the size of my thighs was a little bit less important. There's a, there's a role for everyone at every age and every size and every shape. Everyone has a story. So there, it seems like the world was wide open. And then when I got accepted to Carnegie Mellon, I thought this is a sign. I'm definitely on the right track. I got accepted to one of the best schools in the country. And I found this audition note one day and um, it, you know, said a lot of nice things about the monologues I had done, but then it also said, she's a little heavy in the thigh. And I, I thought, wow, this, this really, um, how is it possible that I, am I not built for anything I dream of being? How can my body be so against my dreams that I am, again, blocked? It took me a long time to, like, that was one person's opinion, and it doesn't mean I would never be an actress or never be successful on stage. But that's not what you, in that moment, you don't, you're not able to reason mm-hmm. that, um, especially as a very young woman. I had some other hard times at school. And um, I took a year off in 1990, 91, and I came to New York City. And I had always been riding my bike around my neighborhood as a kid. And I really liked riding bikes. And I used to, during that time from 14 to 18, I, I used to ride my bike around the neighborhood and used to go on streets I shouldn't go on and ride in the dark and do a little bit dangerous (laughs) stuff, which I think may have been part of the acting out of, you know, the anger of that period of time in my life. So I brought my bike to New York with me. And as I discovered how I was supposed to get around New York City, I remember going down to the subway and being petrified that I was going to get mugged. I had no idea how to read those signs, those maps. I was looking at them like they were in a completely different language. So I said, forget this away. I'm going to learn the city above ground. Cannot get mugged on a bicycle. <laughs> and that may or may not be true, but that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in, any, in New York, anything's possible. <laughs> right. True. So I had a job as a bartender. I was giving away too many drinks. They fired me and I needed a job. And looking through the wanted ads and, you know, newspapers, remember newspapers we used to read? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a bike messenger. You need a bag and a lock and a bike, no experience necessary. So I went down and funny story, the place where I got hired as a courier is one block away from where the Peloton studio used to be. So funny. Yeah. Peloton's on 23rd between six and seven. Mm-hmm. And this courier was on 24th between six and seven so they asked me where i know right (laughs) it's serendipitous 
Um, they asked me where the Empire State Building was, and I pointed in definitely the wrong direction. And they said, don't worry, here's a map, here's a beeper. And they sent me on my way. And I started to get a reputation for being fast, for getting deliveries done very quickly, because I would sprint like crazy. And they started to give me a handle on the pager and on the, um, on the walkie-talkie and call me Legs. <laughs> and at first I was like, oh, this is ironic because I hate yeah. Legs. But they're saying I'm fast. That's kind of cool. And at the end of the day, sometimes when we would all ride back uptown where a bunch of us lived, we'd go through Central Park and there's this big straightaway on the east side. And we would sprint on that straightaway before exiting the park. And a lot of times I would win that sprint. And some of these messengers were actually cyclists who raced. And some of them said to me enough times that it it hit me like, hey, you should think about racing. You're really fast. You've got a really good sprint. And I started learning about it. I I learned what a track bike was. I I had this amazing moment where one of these late nights, a friend let me try their track bike. And a track bike is a completely different bike from a road bike that we're everybody is more familiar with. Mm-hmm. On a regular bike, you can coast. You can stop pedaling and you will still roll. On a track bike, the gear in the back is fixed to the wheel. So when you, if you were to pedal backwards, it wouldn't freewheel. You would go backwards. (laughs) So you, this bike requires a very different kind of awareness. Mm. When you get going on any kind of a downhill or get the momentum build up, you have to be very, very careful that your legs don't stop going because the bike is going to keep going anyway. So there's. (laughs) A, there's this incredible commitment to the machine where you are deeply connected to managing your speed with a little bit of pressure, with a little bit of resistance, with a little bit of floating. You can really manage how that bike glides. It's, it is on a velodrome where it's safe to ride a track bike. <laughs> it, <laughs> It is the closest thing to flying I can imagine. Um, That's awesome. If you could put flying and surfing together. (laughs) (laughs) So I fell in love with this. I didn't race until after I graduated. So I went back to college and... I I did messengering in the summers and I rode around all the time and I brought my bike back to New York when I graduated and I started auditioning, but I also was messengering again and I would wear a pretty skirt over top of my bike shorts and I would tuck it up inside my jacket. I would lock up my bike and go to a Shakespeare audition, drop my skirt down. Then get back on the bike and finish the delivery. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I was, I was just riding. And I started to dabble in the racing. And I was getting frustrated with not getting cast in any parts. And again, I was like, what? My legs? 
because somehow it seemed that like there was this incredibly um this uh wall of heteronormative size values on males and females and everything was the girl has to be smaller and more delicate and the guy has to be big and strong and prince and I was like, I don't fit the box. I just mm. don't fit the box. And so I wasn't getting cast. And I went to my agent and I said, I, I think I need to give this a break because I'm I'm feeling incredibly unsuccessful. And they pointed to the size thing. And they also pointed to, they didn't think I had yet grown into my cast ability. I played older. I played the diva. I played the grand dame. I played roles that were meant for women in their 40s, not for women in their 20s. So in the in college, you can get cast in all those roles because it's college. Mm-hmm. In the real world, they didn't think I would get cast for 10 to 20 years because it's just not my my natural character. So I said, I think I'm going to stick to bike racing for now. (laughs) (laughs) I stopped auditioning and I dug deep into bike racing. And within a year I was racing for a sponsored team. I was traveling all over the country. I was racing with Olympians and world champions in a way, like I had no business being there, but I was sort of hanging. And, um, there was a brief moment where I was ranked 21st. I have the old sheet printed on my from my dad's old printer <laughs> <laughs> that shows me being 21st in the country for a moment because it was a, an accumulative points series where you accumulated points at each of these velodromes um, yeah. in a different race series every month. And uh, I finally felt like I'm I'm proud. I'm proud of my body now. And I walk around not only like, I walk around in very short, tight shorts now. <laughs> I'm proud of these thick thighs that are, it doesn't matter if I was winning races. I was racing with the big guns and um, everything was looking up from there. And then I had my daughter, I got pregnant. And I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit pause for just a second. Cause we're definitely going to hit, go into your becoming a mother, but I want to okay. talk, I want to get into the nutrition a little bit. Um, oh yeah. Again, hi. thank That's you. Oh yeah. Hi, nutrition. <laughs> no, I love, oh my gosh. I love hearing all of this background. This is setting the stage for everything and what a beautiful story you have. I love hearing it. So thank you again for sharing all that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you went from a period of casually, I mean, of course, as a dancer, you're dancing so many hours, most days a week and all of that. I presume after you were hospitalized, you stopped dancing after that, or you yes. was it kind of game over? Yeah, that's what I, I yeah, figured. Game over. <laughs> game over. <laughs> game over. Uh, obviously there, and but then you go into being an actress, which obviously isn't a sport. And um, you know, I don't know if it, it sounds like you were kind of still biking and all of that, but then you kind of go from that to being competitive. To your job is cycling, just like it is now. But you know, you are cycling all the time and fast, you know, you're sprinting around and going to these things. I can't imagine that your nutrition stayed the same. Um, or hopefully I imagine with all of this increased physical activity, you were starting to feed yourself better. I don't know if you still had all of that 
baggage from before with related, you know, with regards to food. I imagine some of that was still there. Um, but yeah, how, what was going on with nutrition this time? How did it evolve for you as, you know, an actress in college when you were taking that break, becoming a bike messenger, getting into that, the more competitive scene of, you know, being a track cyclist and all of that. And then I want to speak specifically about track cycling, but first I just kind of want to see what was going on generally there. So in college, there were um, certain parts that required certain costumes and period pieces uh, that required corsets. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And there was a costume that they wanted me in for a production of The Cherry Orchard. I was playing the lead, Luba. And there was this gorgeous antique linen costume that required the whole thing required a corset, but they had to stretch that that costume. And I had to get smaller to get so we had to like meet in the middle mm. if I was gonna wear this costume. And psychologically that put me right back in the same space as dancing did. Mm-hmm. Um because I was annoyed and it triggered me that they had to make it bigger for me because I wasn't small enough. But at the same time, I was, <laughs> I wore this corset far more than I should have because I got really hyper focused on the idea that I could make myself smaller this way. And I wanted to wear the damn dress. That sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like someone getting ready, you know, lose weight for the wedding kind of thing, which is oh, a gosh. horrible, yeah. horrible, yes. horrible um, line of thought. But yes. that's where I was then. And I started to be able to lace this corset a little tighter every week because I was, my nutrition was coffee, cigarette, Vivarin, shredded wheat with banana, and eating as little as possible to get through the day. Um, an apple, maybe some peanut butter. And when it got to be time for rehearsal, the rehearsals at night were from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. If you were going to eat, you needed to eat before that, which is very, very early. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't function or think or act or feel good in my body if I was full. So, and since I had to wear the corset, I couldn't eat that much to wear the corset for the rehearsal. So I would put the corset on an hour or two early and I would eat whatever I was going to eat with the corset on so that I knew I would be okay for the duration of the rehearsal, which um, amounted to spending about an hour to eat a muffin. And coffee at five o'clock at night. Because that, for some reason, whatever that muffin, that pistachio muffin, which is not nutrition. <laughs> yeah. Um, was one thing that sat in my stomach. Um, like gave me just enough energy and, and digested so that I didn't feel uncomfortable. And so for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, that's what I did. And 
I finally got that corset waistline down to 25 inches. And they got the dress up to 25 inches in the waist. That and is small. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that was a small tiny. dress. My goodness. As tiny. Um, and I still thought I was, yeah, it's tragically ridiculous. Um, so that was my nutrition at that <laughs> period of time. So it sounds um, like, it sounds like you went, I mean, essentially you went from bulimic to pretty much being anorexic. I mean, I can't imagine you were not malnourished I, at that time. I was definitely not anorexic though. Okay. I've definitely never been anorexic. Um, and that's not an opinion. <laughs> I was definitely never anorexic. Um, but you were restricting what you were eating, very, no? Yes. Yes. And I was, I was slim. I was very slim. <laughs> Um, and I still didn't think I was because there were just other people who were built differently. And I envied that. And, um, it was a terrible, terrible mindset that this is like that, that my size should plague my life. And I know I'm not alone, which is why we're having this conversation. Oh my God. I mean, who doesn't at some point, especially, I mean, and again, it's not just a women, not just women, it's men too, but especially sure. young girls who has yeah. not had some memory or period of time or years where, I mean, where you're, you know, you don't like your body, you hate your body, you yeah. wish you were thinner, you wish you looked a different way, you hate your thigh, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know, you're playing games with yourself and how long can I go without eating? I mean, that's certainly one I did when I was 15. Oh, I yep. made it to 1 p.m. today. Yay. I mean, yeah. every I, I don't know. I pretty much do not know anybody who has not had some form of distorted eating in their life. It's yeah. so normalized. It's so, it's so common. It's, it's even glamorized. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nuts, you know, it's, it it's, it's really nuts. But um, I mean, just the things that, that we do to ourselves and think it's okay. And I think many people have dabbled in various eating disorders and whether it's bulimia or anorexia or, or everything. And again, I include myself in that. And um, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. It, it's hard growing up and, and figuring yeah. out, you know, what you're, who you are and, and accepting yourself as you are. And I think many people never do accept themselves for who they are. You know, I certainly still sure. work with people in their 50s and 60s and beyond who certainly have not accepted their bodies for where they are it, now. It's absolutely. Hard. I I get messages from writers who take the Peloton classes who, you know, are my age and older, who the idea that you are bigger than a smaller pair of pants has never, ever entered the sphere of their mind until they heard it in a class on a bike where they were probably exercising in order to fit in a smaller pair yes. of pants. <laughs> exactly. And just, I, I just yeah. have to say this, I am so grateful to be in a platform where people come, they think they're coming for potentially a smaller pair of pants. And they, they realize that our platform is, we, we, we're not encouraging that kind of mindset. And when they hear that, there are other reasons to ride and that fitness is not a six pack and fitness is not, um, that smaller pair of pants as much as it is a ritual of self care that, um, th this awakening happens. 
Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and I mean, I certainly, I love your, your classes. I took one this morning, actually, <laughs> and one of your powers yeah. then went, but, um, and, and they're powerful and you even see they're powerful for you. I mean, I think literally the last two classes that I took, you were crying at some point. Um, <laughs> no, but because something clearly was going on for you. And obviously big things are happening in the world right now that are powerful. And, you know, when big things are happening within us that are personal, and it's great that you are who you are and you show that. But um, anyways, Thanks. more on that in a little bit. <laughs> but going back to, to younger, younger Christine, um, I mean, I do imagine there was some level of body dysmorphia going on. Yeah. Again, if you had a 25 inch weight, granted in a corset, that I mean, I can't even imagine. In a corset, what that yeah, that was like, yeah. Who is that dress supposed to fit if you had to stretch it to be 25 inches? Are you crazy? <laughs> I mean, it was a dress for like a teenager. Oh, my <laughs> so um, but let's get let's get into nutrition once you were in New York and bike messaging around. OK, so when you're sprinting on a bike and obviously track cycling, it's a sport that I'm not as familiar with um, as a runner myself. But, you know, bike messaging, track cycling, this is like fast short-ish type yeah. stuff. I imagine you're not fueling wall writings that might be dangerous. I right. I, I don't even know if you have like a, a cage for a water bottle on your track bike. You probably well, don't. Not, not on the racing bike, but okay. like when, on the messenger bike, definitely. Okay. You needed to have water okay. all the time. Good. But, um, but yeah, there's a nutrition during this time. What did that all look like as you were, you know, suddenly biking everywhere all the time? It's really interesting that it was right at around that time when all of that was happening that Bike Messenger was not my only job. I also cooked in a kitchen. Mm -hmm. So I had gone to this restaurant down the street from my first apartment in New York in 95 and ate at this place called Cafe Elsie. And the food was amazing. And I convinced the owner of that restaurant with, I had no cooking school. I had no knife skills. I had no, like I knew my way around the kitchen because I'd mm -hmm. hello, spent a lot of time in the kitchen <laughs> mm -hmm. um, with a lot of disordered eating. But interesting in those earlier years as a teenager with all the disordered eating, I made some really amazing things. <laughs> um, and I knew how to cook. So I convinced this guy to give me a job cooking in his kitchen. And at first I was just prepping, but then I got to do some things and show my creative abilities. And I started to learn more about, it, it came from the, uh, you know, flavors and acid and salt and fat and how these mm -hmm. things all come together to, to give us satisfaction in the mouth. And, um, that led to nutrition because I started to notice I felt different. And at the same time, I'm messengering and you, you can't sit down. At least I couldn't sit down and have a lunch break and like eat a burger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was all on the go. And it was, you know, lock up the bike, go to the deli and grab Fig Newtons. Um, or pack and I learned about um, almond butter and how almond butter was better for you. Like little things that other cyclists told me along the way that stuck with me 
um, mm-hmm. learning whole wheat pasta is a thing and it's better than regular pasta and learning by experience, like don't eat tomatoes when you're going to go ride your bike because they're going to come back on you. Mm-hmm. And what kinds of things gave me fuel, didn't upset my stomach and were easily digestible so that I could keep going. Um, which really boils down to occasionally, this is terrible. It's slim fast. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> the slim fast area. Oh, uh, that was so long ago. I would wow. have, I would grab Fig Newtons and this is mm-hmm. a lot of sugar. This is a lot of sugar. But you're um, burning that. <laughs> well, and with sprinting, that's your, that's your fuel source, right? Exactly. And yep. You've got to have that ready to go in your muscles and boom. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I found I had great sprinting energy if I downed a little thing of um, apple cider as opposed to apple juice. That was a difference somehow. Mm. Um, And so during the day, there was, you know, a sort of controlled, steady stream of certain sugars. Mm -hmm. And then at night, I was, you know, I was having broiled chicken i under i started to learn about how to do broccoli that was not covered in cheese (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know the steaming of things and the broiling of things and the use of spices and herbs to make them amazing um was a whole a part of that whole journey Uh, Mm -hmm. that is also around the time when i started to learn about red wine which is one of my favorite things yeah were you uh I love red wine myself too um were you using sports nutrition products at all at this time I mean I know they weren't quite as big back then but um but were there sports drinks or anything like that going on there was uh nutriment Mm -hmm. which is like a, a basically a nutrition like a vitamin and sugar shake yeah, I think I remember. I remember that's old. <laughs> that's old, yeah. And if no that Gatorade old, or anything. Oh yeah, definitely the Gatorade. Okay. Um, but then when we learned like how much sugar that was, and it was, just, you know, we're like, oh, maybe you shouldn't have that. You just have some water and electrolytes, and not have the sugar. But then you still need some kinds of sugars. Yeah. For energy for the demands of what you're doing. So. Mm-hmm. It was all navigating a, a lot. It was a lot of piecemeal. Um, and what I learned along the way was that almond butter and Ezekiel bread and honey are my absolute perfect food. Oh, best snack ever. Add some band to that. Yum. <laughs> That's like a regular snack in, in my house. For sure. Um, and how many hours a day, like, were you writing at this that, time? I mean, I'd be up at six thirty-seven in the morning, be down to work, and be running packages all over the place for, you know, eight hours a day. Wow. And then, if you wanted to make more, you could stay on and get any double rates at night. Um, and you were training on top of that. That kind of was my training. Okay, but you were racing the- on top of that, I guess on Wednesday nights in Queens and sometimes Tuesday nights at Floyd Bennett field out in Brooklyn. And sometimes there were weekend races. Sometimes I would do road races. 
um, doing racing at least once, if not three times a week. Okay. Riding. And, and you became a mother when you were 27, right? Is that right? Yes. And were, so at that point, like, had you won, had you already like gotten to that kind of higher level? I guess you already sponsored. Have you, had you won your first gold medal yet? Or was that later on? That was later on. Okay. So let's talk about becoming a mother and what that was like. I mean, I, as a mother of two young girls myself, (laughs) obviously I know it can turn your world upside down, but in the most wonderful way, but changing body and food and your ability to exercise. Obviously, when you're super pregnant or immediately postpartum, you're not racing around in a bike, or at least hopefully you weren't a bike messenger. No, I did have, I did have some boundaries. <laughs> but uh, let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk about this period of time and what that looked like for you. At that point, I... Yeah, there was no riding. After three months, I just, I, I couldn't bear to be on a bike, but the the increased blood volume made it so uncomfortable, and I was so breathy. Um, it, it just was, I remember trying to go for a ride, just just a chill ride, and I, I was like, I felt like I was in a different person's body. I, it was so breathless at the least push that, um, you know, and, and I envy people who did not experience that or do not experience that and are able to keep going through their entire pregnancies. I was full stop, no more writing. And the whole idea of like trying to maintain or control the weight gain of pregnancy was whatever. Um, and I was working at that time on my feet for Estee Lauder as a makeup artist at makeup counters all over the city. You have done and... everything. <laughs> Let's see. Know, Dancer, actress, makeup artist, cook, cyclist. <laughs> Renaissance woman, right? I'm I... waiting I'm waiting to hear what you've done next. <laughs> oh my God. So I remember um my daughter was born April nineteenth, nineteen ninety nine. By February I was, I had gained, I I don't even remember at that point how much numbers not relevant. Um, The the bigger point is that I was swelling so much. My feet and my legs were, it was so painful to stand um, that on February 14th, when they had, I was leaning on one of those tall stools where they sit you down to do your, do your makeup. I was leaning on it and they were like, if you have to lean, then you have to go home. And I remember having an argument with them. I'm pregnant. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know. That's another story. But <laughs> I, I went to the doctor and I explained the things I was feeling. And, um, and that was, you know, go home, You're no more working for you, which was a very, very scary time. At the, I was only bringing in $235 a week at that point anyway. What was I going to do with no money? And, um, you know, I wasn't alone at the time, but still, it was a very, very tight time. Yeah. And um, so I stayed home and I remember my appetite. 
I, it was it was a, a bottomless pit. I I remember one night we had burritos, and I said I need another one. And ordered another burrito. <laughs> it was just unreal. I'm like, where am I? Where is it going? And what? How big is this baby gonna be when they come? Out? <laughs> She's eating it. <laughs> yeah. How big? She was eight eight. Okay, so pretty big baby. Yeah. They um they estimated she was gonna be over nine. Oh my um, goodness. And yeah. And I wanted to have a natural birth. And they were like, I don't know if you're going to do that. Did you um, have a natural birth? I did. I did. Oh, great. Awesome. Uh, I was seeing a midwife and I did not want to go to the hospital. But there's another story. That labor was three days long. So. Oh, my God. You poor thing. <laughs> Finally, you're like, you're getting an epidural now. Oh. So. Um, That's rough. Well, you are, you know, you're, you're a, an athlete and you're a strong woman. That is the hardest thing that I'm, I'm sure you're, well, maybe it's not the hardest thing you've done, but probably one of the hardest. I it was hard to like, it, it was hard to at first accept that you're not eating for yourself. You yeah. have to go of all of these ideas about what you think you're supposed to look like. And I will say that while I was pregnant, I did feel so beautiful. I, I did get to a place where I so embraced what was happening and that what was happening in my body was making life. And there was an amazing photographer named Howard Schatz who really sealed that, that understanding of the beauty of what was happening in me. I did this nude photo shoot um, along with many other women Mm -hmm. um, towards the end of my pregnancy. And he just, he inspired me so much. The things he said to me about what's happening in the body and the life force that you're preparing. Um, that's awesome. And yeah, it really shifted. It helped. It, it was one of those moments that shifted my relationship with food. Um, because I fully understood that this is just not about this is not about a solid pair of pants right now. This is about making life. Yeah. And that making life is not just when you're growing a child. It's, it's, you're fe feeding yourself. You're giving yes. yourself life. You're, you continue yeah. your own life. It's, you know, it's all of that. And yeah. what happened after birth when you were no longer, it wasn't just about, you know, you had this external motivator to feed yourself, but right. I mean, I get, I don't know if maybe you were breastfeeding and so there was still that connection, but, um, but dealing with that postpartum body and all the difficulties of being a new mom and all of that, I talk was, me through that and food. I was so blown away that after the baby, you still have the belly. Mm. I was like, why is it still here? How long is it going to take to go away? Yeah. I was like, Nobody told me about this part. Like um, that. A, <laughs> like I had to uh, deliver what? <laughs> oh God. So I, I got very interested in um, just, you know, eating for nutrition. So I was nursing and I wanted to make sure whatever I was putting in my body was going to be good for her. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, you know, the, I went a lot to my, um, the things that I had learned from cycling and from cooking and, 
you know, I wouldn't say I ate perfectly clean, but like I ate mindfully. I did not make baked lasagna and meatballs. I broiled things and baked things and um, was mindful of sauces. And I had, you know, steel cut oats and fresh berries and almonds and always the Ezekiel bread. And um, as I started to feed my daughter actual food, it was how do we put a rainbow on the plate? How do I get her to eat a rainbow every day? Um, some a vegetable of every color. We should have nutrition covered, and um, and I tried to follow that for myself. And um, did she actually eat that? Because I know it's hard to oh, no, <laughs> Like I was like, you can uh, aspire to that. But real life motherhood, yeah. I'm like, if you eat your chicken nuggets, we'll be happier. <laughs> no, kind of kidding, not kind of. I, um, when she hard. was really young, I started dehydrating food. I got a mm. dehydrator because I, I went on a raw food um, kick. Really? And yeah, I got really fascinated. There was a there was some restaurant somewhere in the city that was all raw, and it was mind blowing. And so sort of dehydrating bananas and dehydrating berries and just to have like different textures and things to sure. feed the child. And yeah, yeah. Oh God, you should not eat so many dried bananas in one day. <laughs> no, that's dangerous. <laughs> this is very, very bad. But you, not good. It's hard to like keep the little fingers out of the dehydrator. She would just go in and peel them off and eat them by the handfuls. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I have a little fruit monster myself. My one year old right? like cannot eat enough berries right now. It's it's like I have to make a berry budget. We buy so many berries, it's ridiculous. But yeah. Um, and and I think I read in one of your other interviews, I think there was a really great feature recently. And was it Insider? Was that the magazine? Insider did Insider, yeah. Yeah, it was a great article, but it was talking about how in this in this period of time you were a plus size model, but then you weren't big oh. enough. Or yes. something like that. So Get another thing I, you did. You also modeled. <laughs> <laughs> the weight was not really coming off very easily. And I thought, I need to embrace this. I was always told I was a big girl. She's big boned. So fine. Here I am. Take it or leave it. What other way to embrace and celebrate myself? But to become a plus size model <laughs> and I need a job <laughs> and um, it uh, I mean I really did feel empowered through my pregnancy um, and of course there's moments of struggle but I, I really felt like I was starting to step into ownership and to really stop fighting my body I had discovered the unknown athlete in me for those couple of years that I was racing, I was like, okay, now I'm going to do this. So I went to QVC and I auditioned and they said they loved my look and they loved my walk, but I wasn't big enough. And I absolutely could not <laughs> believe this Goldilocks moment of, holy, <laughs> in what world am I now? And they said, but we could hire you for the fall and winter line because if, if you wear this padding, Jeez. but 
we can't really use you for the spring and summer line or for those outfits because under the short sleeves, your arms will look disproportionately thin against your padded body. So it was the same story as not getting into the short tutu because my legs were bigger than the other girls. Now I couldn't mm. wear the spring and summer line because of the short sleeves. My mind was absolutely <laughs> blown. But I bought that padded suit and I shoved those boobs and that belly and that back and that butt and those thighs into the pantyhose and then went from a size 16-ish to a 22 <laughs> with the padding. And wow. um, yeah, I had this whole, it was amazing. I had to buy like all of this, all of the undergarments in all of the neutral shades. And yeah. <laughs> did, did you eat more as a result? You weren't trying to gain weight though, right? Well, no, you were I just thought, doing the padding. I thought about it and I was like, I, I don't want to go that far. Mm -hmm. But I was only going to go so far as a plus size model, as a padded plus size model. Got it. Because <laughs> um, I was in this, you know, strange in-between place. Yeah. And just, I was still nursing my daughter. So I was eating mm -hmm. for her and eating for health but, and not really worrying too much about it. I, yeah. was, I was like, I'm just going to ride this as long as I do. I didn't know what was next. I didn't have a vision that far ahead. Um, but what happened was every time I had to go on set, I, yeah, you had to look in the mirror. You had to, you know, check and make sure that the scarf was sitting right or the, you know, the hat was angled right. And you put on your confident posture as you're doing your whole thing in the mirror. And if just like exercise, you strengthen a muscle when you're using it, I feel like if confidence were a muscle, I was exercising it, even though it wasn't completely genuine organic confidence. It was, it was a little bit forced. Mm -hmm. I feel like I strengthened that muscle enough that it became real. Yeah. And I've always been aware of my self-talk, which I talk about a lot in classes. Yes. This was one of those moments where I heard myself talk, my I yelled to myself in the mirror. It was like a double take. Suddenly, like like a synapse had connected that wasn't connected before. I said to myself, "You've been missing the point all this time. Too big, too small is completely beside the point. When you rode your bike, you had joy. When you rode your bike, you were proud. Get back on that bike and see how strong you can." Be. I was like. Huh? <laughs> I just heard myself say something very clear, like a message. And um, I need to listen to this. And I finished the day and I didn't go back. And within a couple of months, I was, I was sort of, I got certified to teach cycling. And that was, I think, 2002 or three. Uh -huh. um, I, it was, it was a way to like, to, to get back to fitness and that the teaching cycling made sense um a friend of mine that winter right before i stopped had given me a month pass to gold's gym 
and I took a cycling class and I, it was the most horrible class I'd ever taken. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I saw potential in the experience. I said, this, this could really be something. I think I could do something with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got certified and, and that, that led me here. And that, that was another whole trajectory of, uh, nutrition where now I was going to sort of be on stage again in front of people teaching classes. I mean, isn't that amazing how full circle in a way that this whole thing has come and we're going to backtrack a little bit, but just quickly to say, you know, what you do now is such this beautiful kind of combination of all of these skills you've developed along the way and all of these things that bring you joy, you know, and all these talents. And yeah. it's, it's just such what a what a wonderful opportunity that you found for yourself. And I know you've been at Peloton for six years now, and I think you're at SoulCycle before. And I think I read in one of the articles, maybe it was still that insider one, that you know you weren't really you didn't feel like SoulCycle was a place for you, but Peloton, you saw that everyone was kind of doing their own thing. And it's and it is. I mean, that's what I certainly love about Peloton is there are so many. I mean, there are many things, but there's so many different types of instructors, and everyone can kind right. of find the person or people that speak to them, or even like on a certain day, like I need Christine today, or I'm in the mm-hmm. mood for Cody or whatever it is, you know? Right. Um, but it's, it's a wonderful place for you to just be you. And yeah, it really it's, is. Just pre- it's pretty cool. Pretty neat. It started out, it was, I think I spent seven ish years at Equinox mm-hmm. and then soul cycle. And, and I was a master trainer for Schwinn in that time and I traveled all over the country and I traveled to Brazil to teach teachers how to teach cycling um and I loved that and I when the opportunity to go to soul cycle which was a it was a very very good opportunity it was it was it was a little bit of a beef fit because I was on this international circuit of, of teaching teachers how to teach cycling based on the science of cycling, which is not dancing on the bike. And the soul cycle brand is, is much more rhythmic movement on the bike. And I had to change some of the ways that I taught, but you could see the joy, just joy in movement. And it, I was happy that I could be a part of something that made people move. Mm-hmm. Even if it was not my, you know, pure cycling, I was still on a bike and I was still getting people to move. And I was still able to say things in classes that moved them inside. And, um, so I see the value, I see the great value in that. But when I, when I learned about Peloton and I saw the range of instruction that there is something for everyone, I said, I think there's room for me there. And I think it's going to be a, a more, a, a better fit for me. Um, and I can teach straight cycling again. And yeah. um, that that worked out for me. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it worked out for you very well. Um, yes. So bringing it back to nutrition again, I mean, it must be so challenging to support how active you are. You know, you have all... Uh, you have a rigorous teaching schedule, of course, um, but you're also completing your own training. So, I mean, we can kind of get into, like, I definitely want to touch on 
those six gold medals you won and all the, you know, track cycling and all that good stuff. Cause I still want to get a good sense of that piece of things for you. Um, but also just, you know, the day in and out of being such an active person. I mean, of course you're active as when you're doing your eight hours plus of bike right. messaging, but, but now, and especially, you know, you're 49 now you're, you're older, you have different nutrition needs, but, and you know, you've learned things about yourself, but yeah, I mean, what does a typical day of eating look like for you right now? It is usually um, yogurt with almonds and Ezekiel cereal on it for breakfast or eggs and Ezekiel toast mm-hmm. with honey, um, sometimes some avocado and lunch. Funny. Um, I stick with a sandwich. I will eat um, a whole grain bread and turkey and cheese with pickles and mustard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, that doesn't sound like that's not nutrition. Of course it is. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It is. Of course um, it's nutrition. Like you were bashing lasagna and sauces and meatballs. That's all good stuff. Regular <laughs> pasta, all good stuff. Let's be clear here. Okay. All foods are fine. It's all nutrition. Everything breaks down into energy. So yes, it is nutrition. Even that pistachio muffin that was giving you something. It could give me something. So don't bash your turkey sandwich. I love it. (laughs) I mean, that really like that, that sandwich, I got to tell you is, is actually more important than just my lunch sandwich, because it was a thing that I would not allow myself during those times like the rest of my family could eat that but I couldn't eat that as a teenager like that was the not bread? The, the, you couldn't have the bread you couldn't have yeah. the preservatives in the meat you couldn't have the cheese I'm like yeah I'm eating salad and a can of tuna which yeah. I actually I still love that too um so lunch sometimes is that sandwich and lunch sometimes is you know a whole bunch of greens and spinach and radicchio and endive and um pepitas and some parmesan and a can of tuna with this incredible rosé vinaigrette that I make. Um, mm. Yeah. And, and dinner is often, um, we do tuna tartare with avocado and wasabi. We will do, um, sometimes I will take, Dijon mustard and herbs de Provence and coat chicken breast and then sear it, get it really, really browned on the outside and then finish it in the oven baking mm. and have that with broccoli rabe with garlic and lemon zest and um, Calabrian chilies. Um, that's one of our favorite things. Oh my goodness. You're getting me ready for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what should I cook tonight? <laughs> yeah, and we'll we'll do things um swordfish with lime zest, um, or Cajun spices, salmon with very very spicy um blackened salmon, and always with either a huge salad. We make a salad bowl that's so big that you probably serve seven people. And we just keep <laughs> chomping. I'm. I think that's good. 
Is that because you just want that much salad or because you think it's good for you or what, what is the reason behind it? You just enjoy it. I love it. I love it. I love, love, love chomping on my radicchio. Um, In fact, at any given time, there are probably seven heads of radicchio in (laughs) the refrigerator. We are never I feel like radicchio, I mean, I don't know where you source your food and or you get delivered or you go to the farm record or you just go to the grocery store or what, but I feel like I get like those little bag lettuce things and there's always like the little pieces of radicchio that are always like browned or like, I don't know, oh, I always yeah. like toss the radicchio out, they're so gross. <laughs> That's so funny. I just buy the whole head. The whole head. Where do you, do you typically, um, I mean, you live in New York City, right? I live in Williamsburg. So there's, oh, um, okay. yeah, there's the Whole Foods not far. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't always have it. There's another market. Oh my gosh. I don't even know the name of it down the street that, um, they, they always have radicchio and endive. Oh, and radishes, lots of radishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for meats, I, I am obsessed with the local butcher. Nice. I know what farm everything is coming from. Mm-hmm. They they always have it listed what farm it's from, and often, in order to get the cut that you want, they have to go make the cut. Yeah. So you know it wasn't sitting around. It hasn't sure. been it didn't come off of a truck already wrapped from some other yeah. place. You're literally it it's it's so farm to table, mm-hmm. um, and it might cost a little bit more. And I absolutely. I'm willing to pay it because I need to know. I just, I need to know it. It was that there were less hands involved and less yeah. processes involved. Um, yeah, absolutely. So. Do you and your partner both cook? Oh, we, we cook. Yeah. It is a huge bonding factor for us. We are That's obsessed awesome. with the kitchen and we will spend all of our time looking for new recipes to make and, Fun. obsessing over new knives and sharpen, <laughs> he, sh- he has all the stones and he sharpens the knives oh, that's <laughs> like, great. really 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 into the kitchen is your daughter home with you now uh, or is is she kind of out on her own she's in philadelphia uh-huh. and um it's funny for new i have always tried to impress on her the importance of nutrition and she um She's vegetarian, mm-hmm. and but she also like she she's lacking in energy a lot. She's often tells me she's tired, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, eat a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. I know it's not. I know like, all vegetarians out there want to kick me right now. Uh, <laughs> I know that she doesn't need to eat a chicken. <laughs> yeah, it would but, be an easy uh, solution, but yes. <laughs> It's terrible. It's terrible. It's, it's, you know, oh. when you're vegetarian, you just have to be a little bit more thoughtful about yeah. your nutrition planning and all of that. But yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, t- it's it, how long has she been vegetarian for? Years, years, okay. years, years. She's 21 and it's yeah. been like, I don't know, seven years maybe. Okay. Um, I just sent her two cases of Satan. Because she said um, it was too yeah. expensive to buy, so I was oh like, man, I'm gonna send it to you. And I mean, while we're on the subject of your daughter, I mean, raising a daughter with kind of a positive body image, especially having been through what you've been through, you know, what you went through. Right. What 
tips do you have or insight or anything do you have to share with me? Because <laughs> I have two daughters, <laughs> one in three. Uh, but also with any listeners who might have daughters. Um, yeah, any anything you want to share about that? Oh, I mean, it's 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 um, it is so difficult to convince someone, anyone, not just your own child, but you are beautiful and powerful and strong and capable and feed that feed yourself to fuel your future and not to deny yourself in this this thinking that your body is your enemy and your body is not worthy and your body is not lovable it's such a um such an individual journey and anyone can you know i can say a whole bunch of inspiring things about you know eat 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 for fuel and eat for pleasure and and don't judge your body against someone else's i've been through this whole journey and for someone who is much younger in the world and, 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 and potentially still so deeply influenced by the media machine um, and everything in TV and commercials that we see that tells us what we're supposed to look like and that food is the key to looking this way, looking the way that is lovable and acceptable and valued and worthy is, is none of that is true. To I, I, w- I wish to inspire listeners to understand that while nutrition is is a key element in having a healthy body that can move, that the most beautiful body is the one that can move, is the one that at eighty can carry the grandchildren up the stairs. Eat for that. The most beautiful arms are the ones that can hug. Eat for that. Um. It's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. It's so it's it's such a it's so loaded. It is so deeply loaded. It is, and it's so hard because you know I think we all we all have, still have our struggles, and I'm sure yeah. you still have your struggles. You know, no one has it perfect. You mentioned perfect clean eating or perfect this. I mean, that doesn't exist. No one, no one no. has it all figured out. No one has their shit together <laughs> completely. Oh. And we're always working on our, our on bettering ourselves in some way or pulling ourselves out of some hole. And you try to be a positive role model for your children, for our, you know, and and for our daughters and but you can't protect them from everything and right. you can give them all of these like really strong beautiful messages you can't first of all guarantee they're going to believe you <laughs> you know so right. you can say it and like or will they accept it but it's also them being just exposed to everything out there which is so scary and hard and we know what that's like because we have been through it ourselves and yeah. you don't want your child to suffer in the same way that you you did and Exactly. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard stuff. Um, anyways, thank you for that. Um, along those lines, and I, I really, I, I we will get back to your tracks. I keep saying that. 
I really, we were going to go over that, damn it. No, no, but before we do that, because we are on this, this line of kind of more inspirational stuff. I am, I can, I will, I do. That is such a powerful Christine-ism or however you want to call it. This is kind of your essence and what you put out there all the time. It is such a beautiful mantra. And I want you to tell me how that came about. And maybe you can give us some examples as to how it might be used in the nutrition space or improving one's relationship with food and body. Um, I am, I can, I will, I do was born in the one moment that I can say that it, it finally stuck was a class I was teaching in the early 2000s at Equinox on the Upper West Side. <laughs> um, I mean, it was something I'd said to myself in bike races. It was something I heard in my head before. But there was this one class where I was teaching, we were climbing a hill, and it was the last song in class. And I was inspired, and these drums were banging, these Japanese koto drums. And I said, turn it up until you think you can't. And then you tell yourself, I am, I can, I will, I do, now go. And like the, the, you could feel the energy in the room just explode and people went for it. It was like the Olympics were happening right there. And people started to come up to me after class like, wow, like that was a moment. That was a really special moment. And, um, and they remembered the words and they came up to me weeks later and they're like, you know, that really stuck with me. I can't get it out of my head. And weeks later, and then I started I played the song again and I gave it the same cue again, almost like a, like a monologue, like a rehearsed thing. And, mm. and then eventually I realized, Oh wait, you don't have to only say it on that one song. <laughs> <laughs> you can say it anytime you want. And it started to become my signature. Um, it started to become associated with me and I literally made it my signature in my email. And I never knew it would turn into what it has turned into. When it turned into WordShop, that was a whole new world where I, it, I don't know, I created this thing. <laughs> um, when I think about WordShop, which is my workshop in self-talk, mm -hmm. it was just an entirely organic extension of how I talk to myself and I'm sharing that story with other people. My workshops address the fact that we talk to ourselves and suggest that we might change how we talk to ourselves in order to create possibility in our lives. We've all heard a version of the quote that if, we've if we say that we can't, then we've decided that's true. And so the opposite is also true. And when we say I can't, we're tied up in a judgment where we, def we deny possibility. And if we shift that and edit those words and get a little more curious about what we're saying to ourselves, we create possibility. And we use those words, I am, I can, I will, I do, in my word shop. We answer those questions or finish those sentences and 
go through an editing process to get down to the root of what we are, what we can do, what we will do about it, to what we do and who we then circle back to who we become. And how, how, I mean, have you used it before in like related to nutrition or food? Or can you give us an example of how maybe someone struggling with food might use it? If you were to take the sentence, I think of the sentence I am as identifying where you are. So you've ordered an Uber before, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't know where you are, the car cannot come get you. And the car cannot take you where you want to go. So in terms of nutrition, I am. Fill in the blank for where you are in regards to nutrition. But I am eating everything in sight. I am numbing myself. I am starving myself. I am. Where are you? And use Mm. these words to acknowledge where you are, take the sentence I can to recognize that you have possibility, you can do something about where you are in order to get where you want to be. So I can make different decisions. I can have a list of things to go to. I can make a schedule for myself. I can get a grip on this. I can call a nutritionist. I can make an appointment. I can be more mindful about what I put in my mouth. Take I will. And I will is funny because when we say I will do something, sometimes we, there is this terrible outward pressure because once you've said, once, once an I will has come out of your mouth and landed in the ears of someone else, there's an external pressure. And I like to encourage people to think of I will differently because I will also seems to have a timeline on it. If we can think of how we finish the sentence I will without the pressure of doing it today or tomorrow or next week or next year, what if what you will do doesn't happen for three years? That's fine. Just get these ideas out of your head and onto a piece of paper and you'll have taken a huge step from being where you are to where towards where you want to be. We've established where we are, what we can do about it. We've made some declarations about what we will do in time, which brings us to I do. And the best, it's a very, very simple example, but you can hear the weight of these words. I did a word shop five years ago and this woman, she said, I am angry and frustrated with X, Y, and Z. I can, and this is hyper simplified, ride my bike and eat my greens every day. (laughs) (laughs) I will my bike and eat my greens every day. And now I do ride my bike and eat my greens every day. Nothing happened in the breath between each of those four sentences. Nothing happened. But saying the words 
feels different when you say, I can do this. I will do this. And now I do this. Each one of those sentences has such a profoundly different meaning. And when we hear ourselves say it out loud, we have moved through space and time from a place of not moving to a place of possibility. And whether it's a relationship with food and nutrition or a dysfunctional relationship with another person, these words are powerful tools for change. Awesome. Thank you for walking us through that. And I love it. This is, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful mantra and it's a wonderful um, exercise to do with, you know, so many things in your life. And especially yeah. now with lots of tough things happening, um, I'm yeah. sure many people have found power and comfort in, in doing that, which is really yeah. wonderful. Um, awesome. Okay, as promised, <laughs> let's go back. <laughs> To track cycling and sports nutrition, because this is, you know, after all, a sports nutrition podcast. But of course, we talk right. about all kinds of things. And you can see how in these athlete nutrition profiles, we really are telling stories with through a nutrition lens, as I like to call it, right. um, which is really awesome. But OK, talk me through being becoming a gold medalist, winning these races, how you you know, fueled yourself. You started working with a coach at some point. I think you still work with one now. Yes. How this fits into your busy, crazy life and, and being a Peloton coach and being coaches elsewhere before and fueling yourself through all of that. Tell me about it. And and I also want to hear the specifics of, of actual racing, how mm -hmm. long that takes and how are you fueling yourself then? Because as you said, you are not actually taking in nutrition during the event itself. Right. Um, for racing, I, I eat more cleanly than I do in my regular life. So there's, there's different stages of events. Like there's your regular weekly racing where, well, before COVID, mm -hmm. <laughs> I would literally travel two hours to Pennsylvania or fly to Canada for an event that might last two days. And for the couple of days before that, I'm not carb loading like you might for a long endurance event, but mm -hmm. I will add more complex carbs to my diet. Like I don't eat a ton of, I'm not a carb cutter. I'm by no means keto, any of that. I eat carbs, um, but I don't eat a of them. I don't regularly have them. And and not for on a regular not for any other reason except that like rice and pasta just they feel so like they don't just feel so heavy in my stomach and doesn't doesn't feel good. But you so, are eating carbs if you're having your Ezekiel bread. Let's well, be clear right. about that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. yes that you. is a carb. Yes. Those are <laughs> you're having it. If you're having a sandwich, I mean, you already told me you have three, like yeah. you have a slice at, at breakfast and two slices at lunch. I mean, you are yeah. definitely eating carbs. Just want to make sure. Eating that's carbs. Okay. Good. Yes. Very clear about that. <laughs> yes. But it's the, you know, the, I'm talking about the Start, other starches. Carb loading concept sure. is not, um, I don't do that. 
but I will have more with dinner um, as we're leading up to, or I will switch to perhaps the um, steel cut oats um, a little bit in the morning um, in the days leading up to. So I'm getting more of that in my system. And yes. Are they short? How long are you like, how, like, yeah. How many minutes are you? Yeah. Races. races. So the, the longest races might be 20 minutes. Okay. So it is quite short. (laughs) Yeah. But like those, that would be like a race or a scratch race where you're going around multiple, multiple laps in a big group. Mm-hmm. Then there are the short, the, and this is interesting because that's an endurance event on the track. Yeah. So you have like regular life endurance events, which are like a hundred miles or your triathlon, sure. like hours. Yeah. And then you have all of track, which compared to that would be considered all sprint, but within the world of track itself, that's considered an endurance event. And the sprint events are things like the 500 meter time trial, which is, you know, if you're really fast, it's 30 something seconds. And if you're in my world, it's like hopefully just under 40 (laughs) seconds. (laughs) But that is like a blip. It's it so fast. It is a blip of fire and pain. Uh. Oh, see, that's, this is the kind of stuff I cannot stand doing. I mean, I suck at this. I am such an endurance person, but oh, that hurts so bad. Even 20, like the 20 minutes, you must be crushing it in those 20 minutes. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, it is a heightened, you know, you're at some pretty intense levels depending on the speed of the race. And then every single race is different. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, there's ways where you can serve energy, where you're, you know, trying to stay protected from the wind because it's amazing how much um, being alone in the wind in the front burns so much more energy than being behind someone. And so you're always jockeying for this position where you're protected from the wind, but you have a way out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a very tricky um, positioning to always maintain. So there could be a points race, a scratch race, which are longer races. Then there could be a 2K. Now that's about a two and a half minute race. That is the most painful thing I've ever done. That (laughs) two and a half minutes is is, is an incredibly long time to suffer. It is way harder because it's also only you. There's no actual rabbit to chase. There's no, you're not. Oh, wow. Interesting. It is just you at the bottom of the track lap after lap after lap after lap to try to go as fast as you can over 2k oh that's so uh, interesting have you ever thrown up I've, after these events i was so sick after the one i did in 2017 in canada in the spring um or the winter rather that i when i got off the track i didn't throw up but i was Heaving, my lungs were spasming. It's called track hash, and I couldn't stop coughing. I like tasted oh. blood in my mouth. Oh my uh, god! Oh, it was so hard, so so harsh. Um, and you know the the metabolic demands and oh, the yeah. energy systems you're working on are so different in these different races. Um, and how you attack the two K versus how you attack the five hundred. 
Mm-hmm. So the 500 meter time trial is less than 40 seconds. The 2K is two and a half minutes. The 500 meter time trial, you attack that like you are going to to rip apart the bike from the <laughs> from the top. Like you were trying to break the bike. In 2K, you're like 70% trying to break the bike. <laughs> yeah. Which is a very different, there's very different physical sensations in the body and there are different demands and different processes on how your energy is burned and how quickly you're, you're going to run out. Um, What's your strongest event? Well, funny, that's been a, that's been up for debate for some time. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's changed as you've gotten older. I don't know. It's, well, I really did think I was being, I, I was driving more towards the 2K um, and that more endurance end of things in the last last year. Um, I was showing some some significant um, development in that race and getting my times down pretty significantly. Um, but I hate that race. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's a love hate thing, though, right? <laughs> I really, really hate that race. Um, and I really, really love the match sprint. Now, that's the shortest ah. race of all. The match sprints work as follows. Let's say there's 10 people who are going to do the race. Every single person does an individual 200-meter time trial. Oh, that... <laughs> You wind up on the track and then you get like one or two laps, depending on the length of the track to wind up. And then you dive down as fast as you can. You want to be at max speed once you hit the 200 meter line and sustain it to the finish line. So you've already burnt a lot in the, in the wind up and then you got to hang on to it. So it's a, there's a lot of timing that happens so fast because that race happens between between 10 and 12 seconds. Wow. That's like pure anaerobic Completely. metabolism going on that there. Is zone seven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would like wow. That sounds that. terrifying. This sounds oh terrifying God, to me. <laughs> so much fun. It's like being on a roller coaster. And it's a short oh, period wow. of time. So yeah. at the moment, it doesn't feel very short when you're in it. The seconds are longer. So how, how do you feel for all these different things? And do you feel differently depending on your event? And I'm talking about like, I, mean, I don't know if your events are, or races are like morning or day or night, or if you know exactly what time you're going on, or if there's some question mark there, or how that works. Cause I know there's some sports where it's like, we might be starting this time. You don't really know, but yeah. Oh. What does it look like for like, are you keeping snacks on hand or sports? Oh, yeah. So you have, yeah. What, what does that all look like? I have a full cooler and I have um, all kinds of, you know, BCAA powders that I'm constantly sipping on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always almond butter and the Ezekiel bread and the honey mm-hmm. and cliff bars mm-hmm. and bananas. And that's usually what I keep in my track food bag 
and nibble on it all day. And now over the course, of, like it's a little bite here and there all day. I may have started in the morning with the oatmeal. It's always not may have. I always start in the morning with the oatmeal on yeah. race days, but it's just, it's so hard to stay on top of it. If it's a regular race day, like just a weekly race, that's usually in the evening. There's four races. Like if you place high enough in the first three races, then you might get to do a feature race at the end. And so you're, you know, you're nibbling along and just making sure that you're not eating too much, but also making sure that you're not hungry. So it's, yeah. it's a fine line of like a bite, a bite, a bite, a bite and mm-hmm. staying hydrated, which sometimes it, you know, if this is the weekend thing to be blazing sun and everybody's sweating like crazy and getting dehydrated. Oh, so it's outdoors? I thought it was indoors. Some are outdoors, some are indoors. Oh, interesting. And some of the indoor ones, like the one in Canada, they keep the they keep the velodrome so hot. You'd think what? you were in the sun. Oh gosh. Yeah. So I mean, there's so many things to consider. And this is what I find fascinating. And I mean, this is what's also fascinating about sports nutrition. It's like, I mean, even you can take one sport and one distance and everybody's different. You have all, you have the individual factor going on with just each person is different, but then you take like all the different sports out there and all the different events and all the logistics and environmental things to keep in mind. And there's just so many variables. So it's always just like such a challenge to figure it out. But you know, this is, this is a sport that I have really, truly no experience with. and, And it's, it's very, it's very interesting to hear about that. It must just be challenging, as you said, walking that fine line, because, you know, you don't want to overeat and you want to be, but you want to have good fuel, good energy, um, especially because like, if you're sprinting, it's not like you're just going out for a long, a long bike ride and it's okay to kind of eat and whatever. Like I imagine if you're sprinting, you really truly have to have had digested your food or otherwise you'll get sick. So yeah, I find that fascinating. It's a huge challenge. And then on events like world championships or national championships, you're only going to have one race a day. Okay. So that might be easier to prep for, I guess. That's a little easier to prep for. However, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> the schedules change and oh, I'd have had like there um, at world championships in Manchester last year, I did a great time on my 2k qualifier mm-hmm. i got like two minutes and 30 some 36 seconds it might have been faster than that i don't remember but the point is i i i didn't eat enough before the final i could have been on the podium uh. but i literally and my coach said you had no nutrition you didn't eat i told you to eat <laughs> He's like, I don't know why I didn't eat, but yeah. when it came to the final, I blew up. I had nothing to give, and my time was so much slower. It was I was embarrassed. Um, I have nothing to be embarrassed about, but it, I was so disappointed in myself. Um, I my nutrition messed me up for sure. Um, yeah, it really does make I, or break performance for sure. Yeah. So what, and what are the events that you did win golden and when did those happen? Are any of those recent? Yes. 2019, the last time we were allowed to race. Uh Congrats. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, What was that distance? That was the team sprint 
which mm-hmm. was also 500 meters. Okay. But it's a two-person team over the 500 meters. So one teammate is the starter and the other one is the finisher. And you both start at the starting line. And the starter bike is actually held in a gate. So it is electronically released for the start of the race. The second rider is held by a holder. When the gun goes off, we both go off together at the same time, but we're in a slightly different gear. Her job is to attempt to ride away from me. And my job is to not let her ride away from me. And because of the different gearing, the timing should work out that as we pull away from the starting line, by the time we get into the turn, I'm on her wheel. And ideally, we stay together and I'm drafting off of her while she's plowing through the first lap. Wow. Comes around and right before the finish line, she has to pull up and get out of the way. And I finish the second lap. We won that race at Masters World Championships in 2009. Awesome. Yes. That's awesome. Well, congrats on that. Really cool. What, so how do you like, okay, you're training for this stuff. I don't know how many hours a week you're putting in. Um, and maybe you can speak to that, but I mean, doing the Peloton classes in addition to that, how do you, how do you handle that? I imagine you must be snacking. You must be, I don't know what you're putting in your bottles of Peloton this morning. Cause you didn't mention snacks in your everyday. And I was like, Hmm, that doesn't sound like enough food for you. <laughs> I imagine you're, I hope you're snacking. Um, but like, I know today I took a 60 minute power zone ride that you did on Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. you looked extra happy that day. And I think I know why, by the way, but you know, we don't have to talk about politics. Anyways, <laughs> you're really glowing. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, but yeah, I, I it was like, what's in your bottles? Is that water? Is that electrolytes? Is that a clo- like, does that have calories and electrolytes? What's I, going on there? How do you support all this? <laughs> I'm really loving vital proteins. Uh-huh. Um, the pre-workout powder is, uh, it, it feels like there's unicorns in the bottle. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't tried, I haven't tried their products. I know they make like was it the collagen peptide, yeah. whatever it is? But yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't tried the other stuff. Okay. So that's I've what you're been, having in your bottles. I've been trying that the last like two months and I'm um, really enjoying how it sits in my stomach and how I feel fueled by it. Um, and not to sound like a commercial, but I love all the flavors. <laughs> it's, just <so> good. <laughs> it's like just right. Like some things are too sweet and some things are like, yeah, but they, anyway, it, it works for me. I'm really enjoying it. Um, and that's that's what I'm putting in my bottles. And even though it says pre-workout, I'm drinking it during the workout. Okay. Just plain water. Um, it just sounds so odd. Water makes me thirsty. Like just plain water makes me feel thirsty. (laughs) Sometimes water feels like, I I don't know, depending on what kind of filter it's been filtered with or what brand, Uh like. So I always have to have something in the water and vital proteins has been it. Okay. Um, and that's, you know, that's electrolytes and vitamins and sure. stuff to just sort of keep it going. I, I eat maybe a couple more than I should in a day. RX bars are such a go-to. Yeah. Oh, for me too. I, 
really, really, really love the RX bars. And I really, really want them to come out with raspberry again. <laughs> Have, do you lot. eat their nut butters? I love their vanilla almond butter, nut butter things. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. It's carrying around a jar of almond butter is challenging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just like they have a little extra protein in there. It's handy for travel. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, this cool. is great. This is great. Any other go-to snacks? Yes. I also um, banana mm -hmm. is a go-to snack. My favorite favorite thing is that if I have the space for it, you know, like I'm not on the street. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that Ezekiel bread with almond butter and honey, and the almond butter that is just pure ground almonds. Yeah. The the really the like the plainest 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 thing, yes, I love that. Awesome. And you asked about the number of hours of oh training. yeah. Um, right now my workout schedule is three times a week strength, and that strength workout takes a little over an hour. Um, mm -hmm. and then those are followed by thirty minutes on the bike on the rollers. Mm -hmm. Um which is, I don't know if you've seen any of my Instagrams on roll. I think I've seen it once and it looked very scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you like balance the bike by pedaling on these three metal drums that are connected by oh. a rubber band. And it's, wow. it's, it's, I definitely still have fear every time I get on, even though I've been doing them for a long time. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, um, and that's three days a week. And then on the other days, there are... Um, Right now, she has me doing always some kind of two-hour or more ride on the weekends. And right now, the weekend two-hour ride is um, climbing. So I have to climb, lots of climbing. The other days are a series of five-minute, uh, think of it as like zone six efforts. Um, mm -hmm. And then another day, it's a horrendous number of 30 seconds on and 30 seconds off uh, <laughs> at, like, a ridiculous zone. Yeah. And then <laughs> the other day <laughs> is, like, two sets of 15 minutes of death. Um, <laughs> Good way to describe it. Yeah. Are you ever training like, on the Peloton or are you doing most of your training on your own bike? I do some of it on the Peloton and I do some of it on my road bike and I do some of it on my track bike. Mm. Um, sometimes I just need to like listen to a class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to hear somebody else talking to me. <laughs> sure. 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 Um, and when you're though, teaching, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, even if like I'm following a different workout from my coach, it mm -hmm. still like occupies the mind to listen to someone else, even if I'm not following the class. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, awesome. All right. I know we are like approaching two hours, my goodness, but what an awesome conversation this has been. We just, we could talk to you all day, Christine, seriously. I know. Right? <laughs> um, but, um, but seeing that I do have to pick up my daughter at school in a little bit, we'll start to wrap it up a bit. Um, I guess one kind of wrapping up question, what challenges do you still face with your nutrition and or body image? Um, or do you feel like you've kind of got it settled at this point? And again, we're not thinking about you ever kind of completely having it figured out or having it perfect or anything, right. but 
Do you feel like you're in a good place now? Do you feel like you have more work to do? I'm in, I do have more work to do. I feel like I'm in a pretty good place, but it's funny. I, I realize that I, I have still placed myself on a stage in tight clothes (laughs) with people who are smaller than me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and, um, while, while I'm in the best place I could ever possibly be, and I own my space as, um, as, as that fitness is not about a six pack. And while many of my colleagues happen to have them, I don't, (laughs) and that is okay. And there's room for all of us. And fitness is a bigger picture than that. Um, and I'm, I feel so grateful to work for a company that honors that and recognizes that. And, um, it's, it's really in that way, I feel like I have arrived and found my home. And, um, that is a very, very powerful thing. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's that little demon that's like, well, what if you just lost that 10 pounds? Like, and like, I remember how I'm talking to myself, like, for me to do that is, is, is a, for me to start thinking that way is, is damaging. And I want people to know, like, you don't have to look a certain way that society has trained you. You're supposed to look to be worthy, lovable, successful, valued. And, and guess what? I'm a world champion and I don't have a six pack. (laughs) I, 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 I'm going to say like, I do some pretty awesome stuff. And I might not look like your typical athlete. What you think of what the world thinks an athlete is supposed to look like. Just the way, you know, what a dancer is supposed to look like. Yeah, um, and especially a cyclist, and, you know, because cycl- right. cycling, weight is such an, uh, you know, power to weight ratio and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't tell you the number of cycling clients I get who I want to lose weight. You know, it's like the number one thing. Yeah. So it's it's powerful. It's powerful to see you win and succeed. And even if you weren't winning, but still you're strong. and and you are an athlete. You I know? am an athlete. And that is, is a powerful statement. I am an athlete and I can win without a six pack. Yeah. And I, <laughs> and no, I will yeah. keep racing. And the, the, um, it's an interesting thought shift to go from, I want to lose 10 pounds to, I want to improve my power to weight ratio. That's a different conversation. Yeah. I mean, That's do you want to improve it? Is that something you want to do or or trying that to do it anyway? something that is in my mind, but I do realize it's a delicate dance because it is closely connected to losing weight. Yes. So there's there's a, there's a whole story there, you know, and I've done pretty damn well as I am. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so yeah. that is a conversation that I have with myself currently yes and I think it's really tricky because you know I I get people coming in because that's that's what they want it for performance and there's no deny even though being lighter does not always equal being faster and stronger 
Right. You can't deny that to some extent, like there obviously is an influence of weight on performance in certain sports where you are moving your body forward. And right. so it's always very tricky with that whole yes. issue of weight. And I talk about this all the time with people. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's just very tricky. And when, especially when you have history of struggle with, with weight and eating, it's just, uh, it's a hard yep. place to go. But at the same time, when you're trying to improve your performance, is it a place that you have to go? You know, it, right. that's a question mark, right? It, it's, it's hard. It's hard for sure. Um, mm. but I will, I will say that I, I'm, I know that many writers and, and people see you and it's refreshing to see someone who does look different and doesn't have like a fitness model body as, as wonderful that is too. And every, I, again, all the instructors are great, but to know that this is a company that celebrates all bodies, you know, yes. to an extent, yes. obviously, but um, they, they do celebrate some different bodies, some different ages. It's not just mm-hmm. young people. To right. my knowledge, I think you're the only mother. I know Robin's pregnant, but are you the only one who oh, actually oh, a child? Jen Sherman. Jen Sherman. Oh, she's got a kid two too. Kids, oh, I Christine McGee has three. Oh, okay. Well, then I stand corrected. Okay. Other mothers <laughs> out there. Wonderful. Um, are you the oldest instructor? Um, it's between me and Jen Sherman. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think and- Jen. Yeah, I think Jen's a little tiny bit older than me. <laughs> Got it. And she, of course, is the other instructor too, who doesn't necessarily fit the mold of you know right. fitness instructor six pack body. And right, but it's it's like you want to see people who, who look represent- like you, yeah, who represent other different sizes. But equally, it's not like you're just a normal person. You you are <laughs> like this champion athlete. So That's, yeah, I hope that that unlocks for people the idea that you don't have to look like that to be like successful as an athlete yeah that athletes come in all different sizes and shapes and in fact there are athletic endeavors where there there's no six-pack ever yeah. <laughs> and in fact with a lot of with a lot of sprinter athletes there it is a thicker body yeah. um and that I just want people to know that there's room. They don't think that you can't be an athlete. You don't look a certain way. Your athlete might be in exactly what you're built like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think, I mean, I imagine you are built more for that sprinting, that fast stuff than necessarily the long, long stuff. Endurance in the true sense of the word. Um, But, but yeah, what, I mean, kind of looking forward, obviously COVID has messed up all of our trainer yeah. kind of event plans, but like what is on the horizon for you or do you have kind of training goals, event goals for yourself, especially once this pandemic has eventually, hopefully cleared eventually? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm still training as though, if as though a whole season is going to happen. Um, I, there's an event in, I think, February, well, there might be an event in February, rather, in Canada. And if that is happening, I'm going to be ready to go to it. Um, there's, They have world championships and national championships tentatively on the schedule for next fall. So we'll see what happens. But I'm not going to stop training. Yeah. And, it's, of course, Elton like, keeps you very busy. Yes, <laughs> of course. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hopefully all these things happen for you. Hopefully the 
yeah. world becomes a safer place sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. I'm going to forego, I usually have some quick bites questions I ask people, but given we are already over two hours, I will, I will <laughs> release you back into the world. Christine, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your generous time and for just sharing your story. Um, I know how much I enjoyed it. I'm sure my listeners will as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I think it's, it, it's vulnerable stuff, but I think it's very, very important to share and be very transparent about the real struggles that so many of us are going through. And I hope that through that transparency that we can all see our sameness and in that find strength to make yeah. ourselves happier and get stronger. A thousand percent. And even hearing you just now or you know, recently saying that demon about losing 10 pounds when your whole brand and you know persona or whatever you want to call it on the screen is bigger than a smaller pair of pants and you're yeah. more than this. You are only human. It's not yeah. like you're not susceptible to the same desires and thoughts and negative things oh. that everyone else feels, you know, and that's often that's largely why you are doing what you're doing. So I think it, again, it's really refreshing to kind of hear that from you. So thank, thank you, you again. Um, but yeah, best of luck with everything. Where can everyone find you if they want to learn more about your word chops or follow you along everywhere? My website, very simply, is my name, christinehearco.com. And you can find out about word shops and also my merchandise there. I, oh, man, I love your is, merchandise. Oh, thank you. I have to get thank something. You. I'm definitely getting a t-shirt. <laughs> some good it's stuff on there. It's so powerful to wear those words. And when someone's walking down the street and sees those words, emblazoned on your chest and reads them and you can see it in their eyes when they go oh yeah it's really powerful stuff um you can find about word shops and merchandise there and you can find me on instagram at i am i can i will i do and on my instructor facebook for peloton at christine Dercole peloton Awesome. Well, Christine, I'll see you on the leaderboard soon. And until then, be well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. And that wraps up today's extra long episode with Christine Derkel. It was a long one, but so much to share, so much to unpack there. I really, truly enjoyed it. And as I said earlier, I could have spoken to her all day long. So thank you, Christine, for being so incredibly generous with your time, for sharing your story so openly, uh, for answering all of my questions and me pestering you about nutrition constantly. It truly was a joy to hear you speak. You are a wonderful storyteller. As always, I would love to hear from you guys. If you want to send me an email, um, giving any feedback, guest topic requests, anything whatsoever, if you want to work with me, I am accepting new clients. I think starting in December, I'll have some room. So hit me up, eatforendurance at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. And of course, as always, I'm very appreciative of any ratings, reviews, things along those lines, sharing, spreading the word, just so we can get this podcast out and about and uh, you know, more people uh, listening to it would be fantastic. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening.